little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to, I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're saying? You're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now... You have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Just a short prayer before we consider the Lord's word. Lord, what we have not give us, what we are not make us, for Jesus' sake and for your glory, we ask it. Amen. We're continuing our theme again of this word overcome that we're building up to as we get to the end of John 16 and we come to that glorious transition from Jesus speaking to his disciples to then speaking to his heavenly father. We get 25, I believe, 26, 20, yeah, 26 glorious verses of dialogue between Jesus and his father in heaven. And man, I, I've been excited to look at these chapters that we've been in recently. But John, there's something about John 17. And I just can't wait to get there. But before then, we need to deal with the rest of 16, of course. And we need to look to this overcoming triumph that Christ is speaking into the lives of his disciples, that he alone can accomplish. And so today, as a source of title, we might think of, oh, that's from last week. Sorry, that's the wrong one. It's my bad. Um, but the title this week is Overcome Sorrow Turned to Joy. Sorrow Turned turned to joy. And if you um, grabbed a bulletin on your way in, um, you'd have an outline in there as well um, that'll help you walk through the sermon. Um, I usually like to preach in these four points of a call, something to listen to that is true from God's word, a conflict, a point where we need to realize our sin um, from Christ, a point where we need to repent and believe in him, and then a matter of completion. How do we walk by the spirit in these things? Again, last week we looked at this matter of the Holy Spirit advantage. And that advantage came out of a lack. In that Jesus says to his disciples, it is better for you that I go away. It is to your advantage that I go, verse 7 says. For if I do not go, the helper will not come to you. There's something mysterious about Jesus' plan. I need to go back to the Father. I need to take my place at his side as your high priest, interceding for you. Reminding the Father, though he need not be reminded as though he had forgotten, but to be the present reminder, the constant voice in the ear of the Father for you, church, that his blood has washed you clean. 
That is something to sit and ponder. The ever-presence of Christ before God the Father is the means of the Father ever being reminded that you are accepted because of his blood. That is incredible. And it is the helper's work, the Holy Spirit's work in us to remind us of the same thing. Because it is Jesus who then becomes the bridge between God and humanity at the cross. He has overcome our sin. He has sent his spirit to live inside of us, to give us an advantage as we live in a world that largely has disregarded the message of Christ, that lives as though Christ not only isn't present, but just simply doesn't even exist, that he only exists in the realm of myth and fairy tale and stories that we tell to our children so that they'll just straighten up and act the way we'd like them to. Your very presence in this building right now is part of the way that God is proclaiming to the world that Jesus is real. And that what he has done matters immensely. In fact, it is not just a thing that matters, it is the thing that matters the most. Because through the cross, Christ has overcome our sin and has again made a bridge between God and man that cannot be broken. So as we consider our call this morning, I'd like to for you to consider that God's word calls us to overcome sorrow with the purpose of finding joy. That is not to say that my determination to find joy is so great that it overcomes all the sorrow that I face, but rather my considering God's purpose that we would find joy, considering that God is in this, that he is the one who has this purpose that his sending of his spirit, that the work of Christ at the cross and the resurrection from the grave and, and his pouring his love out into our lives shows that he has a purpose for your joy today. That is not a health, wealth, and prosperity message, church. That is not saying that everything's going to be perfect and comfortable and you're just going to have this cushy, smooth ride from here on to eternity. Things are going to get rough Remember the context of Jesus saying this. This is on the night of his betrayal. One of his closest friends. We haven't considered Judas for a little bit, but I thought of him when I read verse 16 this week. A little while and you will, not, you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. In verse 17, some of the disciples said to one another, this is the first time they've said anything to one another since the beginning of this whole um, scene in John 13 when they were wondering who it was who was going to betray Jesus, Jesus has been talking here for the last few chapters, and there's a break here where the disciples start to look at each other in hopes of finding some camaraderie in their own misunderstanding. What does he mean by this? Well, Jesus is reminding us, reminding the disciples of the reason for their sorrow. They couldn't consider these things because sorrow had already filled their hearts. Do you remember that? In verse 6 of chapter 16, last week we saw this said, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. And we talked about how last week, we talked last week about how when sorrow fills our hearts, when it's the only thing that's there, it blinds us to truth. So the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth, Jesus calls him in last week's passage, comes and reveals and guides us in all truth. See, the way that we deal with sorrow is not directly to say, how can I make this right and don't so many of us think this way, especially in relation to other people's problems? 
right? We think so easily, we so easily go to the idea of how can I fix this issue for you so that you'll stop being so sad? What Christ is calling us to is to overcome sorrow not by fixing what is broken immediately, but by diving headfirst into God's purpose in that sorrow, his purpose of us finding joy. So as Jesus says, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while and you will see me, they can't even think through what this means. Sorrow has so overcome their hearts still in this moment that they just can't interpret what Jesus is saying. Well, we can a little bit. Um, It is good for us to sit in the matter that the disciples themselves, through whom God gave us his word in the New Testament, uh, the disciples themselves couldn't easily decipher what Jesus was meaning here, so we need to live in that for a little bit too. It would be wrong for me to come up and be like, well, let me tell you what the disciples didn't get. That's foolish, isn't it? These guys lived with Jesus for three years. These guys had a special anointing of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit whom we have, but a special purpose of copying down God's word in the gospels and in the epistles that we have. All of God's truth, all the unpacking of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for me to come in and say, well, the disciples didn't get it, but I do, it's a little bit foolish. There are a couple of possibilities. And really, it may even be good for us to hold them in both hands and examine them back and forth and admit that we don't know exactly what Jesus is speaking about here. There's, there's first off, the matter of a little while and they will not see him being, he's going to the cross. He's going to die. There will be a separation. They will no longer be able to see him in that little while. And then as the little while again happens, what is Jesus referring to if that's true? A little while and you won't see me is the cross, and a little while and you will see me must be the resurrection, right? That makes sense. Contextually, that's what Jesus has been kind of building his disciples up to understand and prepare their hearts for. Hey, I'm going away, but I will return to you. But there's even a grander scale of this too. Not that anything's grander than his work at the cross, but timeline-wise, There is a a fact that we kind of live in between these a little whiles as well. That that it could be that Jesus is speaking of the little while, the first little while being the resurrection and the ascension rather. That as Jesus rose from the dead and, and spent some time with his disciples before ultimately going back, ascending back to the Father so that he is no longer seen in the way he was on his earthly ministry, that that might be what Jesus is speaking about. Whether that is what he's speaking about here in this particular passage or not, that's where we live. We live in a sense between these little whiles. Being the resurrection, the ascension, and then the return as well. A lot of what Christianity is, is living in an already but not yet. And that links so well into this matter of sorrow that Jesus moves into from from this teaching. A little while and you, you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. We'll get into that in a moment. Verses 17 through 19, we see the disciples, because of their sorrow, being thoroughly confused, unsure of how to take the words of Christ. They look around at each other, trying to see if somebody else knows what he's talking about or if they might find some comfort in knowing they're not alone. Verses 20 through 21, we see Jesus teaching the disciples the purpose of sorrow with a very special illustration. If you look at verse 20 with me, He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You see the plan, the purpose of God 
is not to immediately alleviate all sorrow and get rid of it. Get this, this is really important. In the midst of sorrow, we anticipate the coming of joy. Your sorrow will turn to joy. This is where it kind of makes sense for us to think about the a little whiles as a little while Jesus is going up to heaven and again a little while and he'll come back. And the in-between, there's a lot of sorrow in between, right? We're feeling it right now. We felt it in, in heavier doses at different times and lighter times and those kinds of things. But sorrow is here and it's heavy. Jesus goes on to say, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So he doesn't necessarily immediately explain the little while thing, but he goes on to further explain to them how they're going to feel their experience of these little whiles. And then relates it again back to them in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now as the woman who has met her hour and the baby is on its way. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. That I will see you again is that, that idea that Jesus, as, as when a newborn baby is born and the mother, in, in one sense, there's this amazing transformation from, from some of the worst, as, as, as I've understood it from other people, the worst kind of pain to some of the greatest joy in that moment. Jesus says that seeing him, particularly he says, I will see you again. That that return of Christ that we are here waiting for, it's not going to be like, well, it's about time. Where have you been? Have you seen the sorrow that's overcome the world? It will be that joy that says all of it was worth it. All of the sorrow that you face, when you see Jesus face to face, it will not be a, well, let's see if this measures up with all my expectation. It will immediately, and it will go beyond. And you will not simply say, now can I forget about all those sorrows? Can I just act like they never existed? No, you will think fondly on those sorrows because they were times that Jesus drew your heart to himself. And the plan and purpose of God in sorrow to create anticipation for joy it's what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. Now, this woman in labor Im image is a very strong Old Testament um, image, and I would call your attention to Isaiah 26 if you would like to look into this further. And when I say if you would like to, it means I would heavily encourage you to look at this passage because I'm going to skip over it this morning. But particularly in verse 18, yeah, I know I said I would skip over it, but there's one thing, just one thing. As Isaiah is speaking for the people of God, he, he pictures the idea of the people of God as a woman in labor. And then in verse 18, he says, we have given birth to the wind. There was all this travailing, all this sorrow, all this pain, all this labor, and then there was nothing there to alleviate our sorrow. Our sin has brought us so far from Christ that it makes us wonder, is our sorrow pointless or not? Jesus promises that he will change our temporary sorrow to permanent joy. You know, heaven is the kingdom of God where every tear is wiped away. I love it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. They talk about God's great plan and purpose as operation no more tears. 
there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. But in the meantime, sorrow is not permitted into our lives by the Lord to crush our joy, but to build humble anticipation and desperate longing for it in him alone. Humble anticipation. That is not, we're standing here with our arms folded and our our toe tapping, waiting to see if Jesus is going to measure up. Sorrow and pain and grief and hurt puts us in the right posture before the Lord of the universe. And that only right posture is humility. I know that can be hard to hear because some of you are experiencing terrible sorrow. Some of you have experienced terrible sorrow. But I don't want you to think of these kinds of words of of thinking, oh my goodness, build humble anticipation. He's just trying to humble us. But it puts us in the right position of what we were created to be. His image bearers, yes, but also because of his greatness, we are also those that recognize his greatness and respond in kind, respond with humility, but also to create desperate longing for it in him alone. Because this week, none of you spent every moment of hope in your life hoping in Christ alone, have you? We've hoped in things like a lunch break. We've hoped in things like five o'clock when dad comes home to help take care of the kids and change that dirty diaper that you knew was there 10 minutes ago. You've, you've put your hope in a weekend where you won't have to get up, where you can, you can finally go to your phone and turn that darn alarm off for one day. You've put your hope in Sunday afternoon when all of the tummy grumbling that happened through church will finally be satisfied. We put our hope in so many different things on these micro levels. And yet Christ is calling us to overcome sorrow by seeing it for what it really is, a part of his plan. But when we see it for what it really is, we see a matter of our sin that we need to deal with. You know, I I really like these moments where the disciples are confused. Not because I rejoice in other people's confusion, maybe a little bit more than I should, but in this case, what I see with these disciples is something that is extremely relatable. And it took me immediately back to Bible college, walking out several times from an exam with my head hung low, knowing that I just bombed it. I didn't understand anything. I wasn't prepared, whatever the reason might be you got to go out into that hallway and hope somebody would be out there ready to say, how did you do on that thing? Right? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take advantage of something that my wife was in, in school, which was that she was not that kid at all. She was the one that others would come to and say, how'd you do on that test? Oh, it was awful. I know I did so terribly. And she would go, I didn't really feel like it was that bad. No, I really thought I was prepared. I thought it was clear, you know, those kinds of things. I think, I imagine that only happened once or twice for her before people said, you know, I'm not going to talk to you anymore about this. Who I need to talk to is that other guy who goes, I know, it was impossible. Oh my goodness, have you had that feeling of that camaraderie of misunderstanding? It's like freedom, isn't it? It's, it's, yes, share in my sorrow in this so that I feel justified. When really... So long as the professor's doing their job and the exam is right on with the subjects that you've studied and learned about and if the test was fair, the issue was not in something outside of yourself but inside of yourself. We've already reminded ourselves in verse 6 that the disciples have allowed sorrow to fill their hearts. 
that sorrow has overwhelmed them. Rather than overcoming their sorrow, they're overcome by their sorrow. And like the 11 disciples, we don't default to looking to Christ, to looking to that perfect one, the one that we know did well on the test. We default to looking inward for a solution for our sorrow. And when we default then uh, from looking inward and don't find it there, we want to find someone else in our like situation to say, it's hopeless, isn't it? We're all going to fail, but we're going to fail together. We're going down with the ship. And that's all that we can hope in. like you to consider how you're encouraged to deal with sorrow as you live in the world that you live in as you swim in the waters of this world one of the things that i found online was a, a very 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 long list of of things to do to deal with sad feelings and one of them that really stuck out to me was they said try to imagine a brighter future okay got that i can see how that could create some positive feeling They go on to say, even if only in an exercise to help your brain break through sad feelings. So, in one sentence, this article says, try to imagine a bright future. There isn't one, but imagine it. Because even if you could imagine it, you might be able to break through that sadness, if only for a second. Find yourself on the other side, and maybe you'll stay there. Right? I can understand the power of positive thinking to an extent, right? But that positive thinking, you know, as you're, as you're walking out of the test and you're, oh my goodness, I failed and all I want to do is commiserate and, and, and just share in my sorrow and wallow in it. The, the, you might hear from the world, well, think positively. Think about the things that you learned from that. You learned that you need to better prepare. You learned that you need to talk to your professor. You know, make a list of all these things that you learned from this moment and redeem that moment, but you'll never be able to go back to that moment and change the letter that ended up on the exam. The world offers us the power of positive thinking because it seems to begin to deal with our sorrow. But it can only go so far. Because if it's true that we can try to imagine a brighter future, even if only in an exercise to help our brain break through sad feelings. If that's our only purpose, remember the purpose and plan of God in sorrow is not for us to get through positive thinking and and just wish away the sorrow and, and, and blow it away from our lives and act like it never existed in the first place. But that's what the power of positive thinking tries to do, is to try to just imagine that that never happened. But the results and the effects of our sorrow in our lives, they linger They stick around. They get dug back up when you have certain memories of things that happened or things that you did or people that you knew. Those things come back up. And it's like the resurrection of sadness. And it is so easy for us to find ourselves in the depth of sorrow that maybe we experienced decades ago. Even if only by listening to a certain song on the radio, finding a picture on Facebook, Remembering some certain kind of memory, there are things that drudge up our sorrow that positive thinking just can't always block out. Even if it does block out that sorrowful thought, it'll only do it for a moment. We are primed to get right back into it. Positive thinking and its power only grounds our hope in fantasy. In, In imagining a life where that sorrowful thing did not happen. But brothers and sisters, let's remember that the very action 
that brought us from our sinfulness, our sinful state away from God and under God's wrath. The very thing that brought us from wrath into right standing with God was at the same time the most glorious, beautiful, loving action and the darkest night of history. The most sorrowful moment when the Son of God hung his head and died, breathing his last. No power of positive thinking was going to take Jesus off of the cross and praise God that it didn't. Our struggle today is to recognize that in sorrow, though it is not sinful to feel sorrowful, sin is close by and knocking on our door when it knows it can get away in. The sin that's to be found in sorrow isn't in feeling sorrowful, but in closing our eyes to joy that's available to us in the middle of the sorrow. See, that's what God offers us, is not a a joy that says, hey, if you could just pray, if you could just recite that memory verse, if you could just listen to some fun worship songs, if you could do some Christian-y things, then we'll get rid of the sorrow, and you'll just have joy. What Christ calls us to is the very picture of his crucifixion. Sorrow mingled with joy. So we might feel the depth of our need and the depth of Christ's satisfaction of Christ's justification, of his right work over our sins. We have to do this in the context of the world. While we wait in our sorrow, we need to endure the joy of the world. Jesus said this. He says, you're going to be sorrowful, and the world's going to rejoice. The world around us rejoices in the idea that Christ has no power whatsoever over our lives. How many times have you seen in a movie or heard in a in a song or, or whatever, something that is to the effect of, you know, if God really exists, let what? What is the common example? Something come from heaven? Lightning, right? Let lightning strike me down. I mean, I don't, even, I don't like saying that. I'm sitting here preaching the gospel. I mean, goodness. That's not ever okay to say, I think. If God is really unhappy with me, let him strike me dead in this moment. What an arrogant thing to do. Yet what a merciful God who chooses not to fulfill that request. I mean, that's what, that's what I love to think about as, as you, you, know, you hear people that, particularly if they're atheists who are trying to defend or rather um, declaim and denounce the word of God and they say those kinds of things like, well, if God wants, to, wants us to know him, why doesn't he prove himself right now? Why doesn't he do something right this very instant? My thoughts go to, wow, if he did what you deserve right now, you wouldn't be too happy with it. It's actually his mercy in his silence, in his patience. But the world around us rejoices while the master seems to be away, but we also await another day, another little while when our master will return. And that day will be a great day of rejoicing, but for the world, it's a day of judgment. The great and terrible day, the Bible calls it. Great and terrible. Do you see again these dichotomies, these holding two opposite seeming things into correct balance and all of God's workings? In that day, the world that has rejoiced in the absence of Christ will mourn and weep and lament. The book of Revelation says they'll even look to mountains and say, would you just crush us right now to save us from the wrath of the Lamb? John 3, 19, we've come to it often. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved what, church? 
darkness instead of light. It is very true what they say, that in in the eternal perspective, God simply gives us what we've wanted all along. If we want light, if he has so changed our hearts so that we would desire him, he gives us himself. If we long for darkness, that's what we're going to get. And it is an important thing for us to consider this morning at the place of our hearts what we truly long for. The wages of sin is death. That's the payment that we get. And, and that death is, is not something that is so contrary to what we've been seeking. I've been trying to live a peaceful life. I've been trying to live a life of, of loving other people. Yeah, I didn't believe in Jesus or I didn't really adhere to any other religion, but I feel like I did pretty good. That is darkness. That is death. Because it's apart from the one true God. And no matter what message of goodness or morality there may be attempted to present, if it is apart from Christ, there is nothing but darkness. All of our attempts to overcome sorrow without seeing it for what it truly is will leave us in darkness. Without seeing it in right perspective, but beneath a God who is sovereign over all things, that he is truly in charge, that he is truly good, means that his people who experience true sorrow, real sadness, real pain in this life, don't dismiss it as though it doesn't matter, but say, Lord, in the midst of this sorrow, would you show me what you're doing? How are you shaping me through this? And that is why, church, as as your pastor, as I pray for you throughout the week, I, I try not to default to praying that all of your problems would go away, but that in the middle of your sorrow, of your problems, of your trials, you'll see it for what it truly is. And see that it is God's ordained means of shaping you in the image of Christ. And if he's allowed these things into your life, and if they don't go away at the first thought of, Lord, please take this from me, it's better for us to seek the joy that is available to us in the midst of sorrow than to try to get rid of it. Christ then comes and offers to us to overcome sorrow by looking to the one who sees us. You remember again here in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. D.A. Carson, um, somewhere in here later on in the notes where I'm actually supposed to say this, says, Jesus seeing us is far more foundational to our relationship than us seeing him. Is that not true? Is it not true that we need the savior to see those who need saved? even more than we need to have our eyes open to see him. Because in those moments where you feel like you can't see him and you say, I know I need to be looking to Christ, but I just don't see him through the the maze of this confusing season of life or through the dark cloud of sorrow right now, I feel like I can't see him. Can you not, church, fall back on the truth that he sees you? And he's greater than whatever might be causing you to be unable to see him. This woman that is in labor, oh my goodness, I have, I've had two kids, I'm sorry. I, I always try to move away from any of these kind of illustrations, but Jesus brought it up, so here it is. I remember when both of my girls were coming into this world, all I wanted to do was to look at my wife and say some magical words that would make all the pain go away. But we talked about that before it happened. <laughs> it was pretty clear. Don't act like, don't say it's all going to be okay. Those kind of things aren't going to work. The power of positive thinking doesn't work. What works instead is God's word, and we found a great verse. Remember it? So anytime it felt like it was getting worse, God's word in the Psalms says, by his strength I can bend a bow of bronze. 
So I became that annoying pastor husband who sat next to his wife and said, bend the bow, honey. Bend the bow. And she knew what that meant. It wasn't about her and her strength, but it was in her overcoming sorrow by looking to the one who strengthens her, who sees her, and who sees you in your moment of anguish and despair and sorrow. The turning point in this illustration that Jesus gives us is when the baby comes, she no longer remembers the anguish. The whole point of the labor was to see the child. And the whole point of your sorrow, church, is to see Christ in the midst of it and anticipate his return at the end of it. This life is full of anguish. It's full of sorrow. But seeing Jesus in our sorrow does three quick things. First of all, it puts our sorrow in right perspective. It doesn't discredit our sorrow, but it puts it in the right perspective. We can see it for what it truly is because Christ sees us. Secondly, seeing Jesus in our sorrow puts our sorrow in the right purpose. That is that through it, we see the sovereign hand of the Lord reshaping our desires. Because at some point, every Christian needs to realize in their sorrow that, you know what? This whole praying for it to just go away thing isn't working. So, Lord, I'm going to pray something else. What do you have for me? What God has for you is things like what he had for Paul. Paul says, I asked three times that the Lord would take away this thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. And what did he say to me? My grace is sufficient for you. Because my power is made perfect in your power? No. My power is made perfect in what? Weakness. And Paul says, I'll all the more boast in my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I need the power of Christ more than my own power. So if weakness is the way, I'm going. Seeing Jesus in our sorrow puts our sorrow in right purpose. Lastly, it puts our sorrow in right placement. It reminds us that sorrow will last for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Psalm 30, verse 5. We can wait eagerly, as we read before we sent the kids downstairs. We can wait eagerly, even though we groan with creation right now. The whole creation is groaning, even when when those in it are trying to convince themselves otherwise with positive thinking. We're going to turn this world around. This earth is going to last forever because we're going to go green. You know, whatever the hope might be. We know that our hope is truly in Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the first light of dawn for his people. And in that, we find joy in his overcoming power. And no one can take that joy from us because no one can undo what Christ has done. Do you realize that? We let the world take our joy from us all the time because we've put our hope for joy in something else. But if our joy is firmly founded in Christ and his work, the world can't take that from you. The world can take your car. It can take your home. It can take your job. It can take your health. It can take your spouse. It can take your kids. But it cannot take Christ. It cannot undo what Christ has done for us substitution he's taken our place justification he's made us right glorification we have a hope that one day we will be what god intended and yet we are not yet that thing that we will be made perfect in christ we will be made whole brought to what he has intended for us and so lastly overcome sorrow by praying to the father in the name of the son where in the world did that come from i will tell you where it came from it came from john 14 verses 13 through 14 We've already looked at it. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. It came from there. It came from chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, make your home in me, and my words abide in you, my words home is in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
It came from John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, he says to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he may give it to you. That is where this comes from. As he's talking about sorrow and all these things, Jesus transitions over to prayer. And he doesn't just say pray about all these things. He says, pray in my name. And then he specifies, and this is why we haven't really addressed this whole matter of prayer yet in looking at John 13, 14, 15, and 16 until now, because he says in verse 24 something so mysterious. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. That is to say that the disciples that walked with him, whenever they needed something, they just simply said, Jesus, can we have it? Jesus, what do we do? Jesus, where do we go? Now he's saying this. He's not saying, I don't want to listen to your prayers anymore. I'm sick of them. I'm tired of them. Why do you keep doing it? I don't answer you anyway. All those things we make up in our own hearts, you know? Now he says, I want you to go into a deeper level of prayer. Not where I step aside and you just go to the Father, but you come to the Father in my name in the same way that I talk to my Heavenly Father. I want you to talk to him as well. Prayer is no longer just me to Jesus. It's me to Jesus, to God the Father. That's how it's supposed to be. That's why he has to go away. Because he's our go-between, our intercessor. And we overcome sorrow by praying to the Father in the name of the Son. Because when we pray in the name of the Son, and this is why we talk about this so often, that you know, tacking in Jesus' name to the end of your prayer doesn't magically make your prayer work. That's true, but I keep saying it every time I pray because I don't want to forget why I can trust that God hears me. It's because Jesus has overcome at the cross. John Calvin said, we have the Father's heart at the mention of the Son's name. I know if you come up to me and you start talking about my kids, you've got my ear. You start talking about how wonderful they are. I'm paying attention. You start talking about how badly they behaved. I say, talk to their mother. You know, it's, it's important. Calvin says, we have the Father's heart at the mention of the Son's name. When you pray and you say, Father, this is what sorrow is filling my heart right now, and I'm asking in Jesus' name that you would help me to find joy in it. It is not the sincerity or the crackiness of your voice or the eloquency of your speech that the Father says, I will listen to you for all of that. But when you say Jesus to the Father, it's as if his ears perk up. You're talking about my son. I love him. Yeah. What do you, what do you want? Whatever you ask in my name. Jesus bookends his teaching in prayer in this matter. And we need to see it as a foundational aspect of overcoming sorrow. In that day, Jesus says in verse 23, you will ask nothing of me. This is again where we're thinking those little whiles has to do with um, the, the return of Christ. In the day that our prayer will no longer be asking, but our prayer will simply be communing with and talking with. Because we'll have Christ in his fullness with, with nothing between us and him. There's no sin to separate us. We will just be with him. There's a hope that one day, there's no sorrow that will block out our perspective of the one who sees us. But he says, until then, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Your joy comes when you realize the Father is listening. You have the Father's ear when you speak the Son's name. Here's a challenge for you this week. Jesus made a radical promise in verse 22 that I will guarantee you, you struggle to believe every day because I do too, because we live in a fallen world. In verse 22, he says, you have sorrow now, 
but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. We've already expressed that when we put our joy in other things, the world can snatch it up super easily. But we've also experienced that there are times that we think, I'm trying to put my joy in Christ, and it just seems like it's not getting there. Would you, in the week ahead, if prayer is already a matter of your lifestyle, would you consider and thank God for the security of your joy when you come to pray? Before you ask anything else, Lord, thank you that my joy is secure in you. If prayer is not a normal habit in your life, I dare you to make it one. See what happens. See if it's worthwhile. See if speaking to the Father in the name of the Son brings the joy and satisfaction that he promises. We're going to sing, it was finished upon that cross, the action of Christ in our place to make all these things possible. And in it, we have these great words, boldly I approach my Father, clothed in Jesus' righteousness. There is no more guilt to carry. It was finished upon that cross. There's nothing that can stop the Father from hearing your prayers. Nothing can stop the Father's heart from wanting to answer your prayers. Come to him in the name of the Son. Overcome sorrow by trusting in the joy of your Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we've ended with this notion that Christ again and again tells us to pray. Pray, pray, pray whatever you want. Pray confidently. Pray with expectation, with humble expectation. Lord, we know that you let sorrow into our lives to keep us in a right posture before you. Lord, I confess for myself, and I think I speak for many of my brothers and sisters, that we so often doubt that we can bring all our requests to you. We so often doubt that you really care to listen. We so often doubt that you're going to answer yes. At the same time, we know that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you shape our prayers? Would you help us even if in the moment we recognize that thing that I know God wants me to pray, that I would trust in the security of my joy in him? I don't want to pray it because I want something else. Lord, help us to pray it anyway. Lord, confound us with your grace, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.